Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's episode is called The Happiness Letter, A Moral Criticism. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode of the podcast. The plan for today is I I want to build on the discussion from last week and go over the happiness letter through the lens of divine command theory. There are many things that are wrong in the happiness letter, but there's an aspect to this letter that makes all of the morality within the LDS religion meaningless. I'll do a quick recap of divine command theory and the criticisms of divine command theory. And then we'll cover the happiness letter and we'll talk about why the theology within the happiness letter makes morality within the LDS context meaningless. Before I jump too far into this, uh, this criticism isn't to say that a person can't believe in the LDS faith or that um, there isn't value to be found within the theology. This is a criticism of the moral theory used to defend and explain the practice of polygamy in the early days of the church. So quick recap from the episode last week. The way people determine morality usually has some foundational aspect. And within the, the the divine command theory, that foundational aspect of morality is divinity. It's God or a goddess or some sort of divine being who is the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. That is the basis of uh, divine command theory. There's other ways that you could base this foundational aspect of your moral code. Uh, empathy, loyalty, honesty. There's lots of different things that you could put as your as like a foundational value that the rest of your moral compass would be built around. Last week, we discussed the Euthyphro Dilemma, which is based on one of Plato's discussions, where he's talking about Socrates and a man named Euthyphro. And and I'm, I'm going to try and use different verbiage that I used last week. So we'll say um, virtue is good because God says so, or God is good because he submits to virtue. If virtue is good because God says so, if God is able to decide what is right and what is wrong, then it becomes arbitrary, especially if in one instance an action is good, but in the next instance it is bad, or vice versa. It starts off as being something that's bad and later turns into something that's good. It makes the morality of the commandments arbitrary to the whims of God. And then on the flip side, if God is good because he submits to virtue, God is not in charge or God did not create virtue. He's good because he's submitting to something that's higher than him. And as we discussed, I discussed last week a little bit, and I said that within the theology, there is um, a strong case that could be made that 
the LDS theology leans towards the latter. It leans towards some outside source, outside of deity, that is greater than God, who it, that is creating these laws that govern reality that God is submitting to. Now, <laughs> I had that whole discussion. I'm not a theist myself. I'm just saying um, from an outside perspective, looking at the theology, especially the the concept of apotheosis, specifically uh, man becoming like God, that concept lends itself to this latter idea of morality being outside of God, and it's a law that they, that they follow in order to become God. That was a bit longer of a recap than I intended. Sorry about that. Um, so I will, I will get to the subject presently. So for a little context on the happiness letter, it was written around August 27th of 1842. And it was the letter in which Joseph Smith proposed to Nancy Rigdon. Different scholars have um, present different ideas and there's not a good uh, consensus on all of the events around uh, this proposal. Joseph Smith and the church seemed to run her name through the mud when she did not um, accept the marriage proposal. So a lot of the details around this event are a little blurry because it, it, it boils down to a he said, she said scenario. If you want some more context on this, go check out LDS discussions. They, he's got a uh, Mike over there has got a uh, full page dedicated to this subject. And there's also been countless other uh, podcasts and discussions done on this subject. So go check them out. They're going to dive a little bit more into the um, historical context and that sort of thing. Whereas in this one, I'm just going to focus on a moral criticism of it. If you're interested in reading it, just Google happiness letter. Um, you can find it in the Joseph Smith page uh, papers. I will read short excerpts of it uh, to discuss some of the ideas being presented. He starts off, and this is this is a quote that is cited quite a bit in general conference. And in fact, after I had deconstructed my faith, uh, I still attended for quite a while with my wife. I was uh, physically and mentally out, as they say, just quiet about my disbelief and just participating for my spouse. I was asked to give a talk, and I had an inkling that it would be the last talk I would give in sacrament. And so I decided to ignore the theme and give a talk that I, I wish that I could have given. I couched it within LDS theology, but basically taught um, some secular Buddhism and some Stoicism, and I personally enjoyed it immensely. But I started out this talk with quoting the happiness letter, just like the prophets and apostles do. The first line of the happiness letter says, Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. So here's where uh, Joseph Smith is going to, he's going to try and create some, um, a sense of urgency with this proposal. And so he's speaking of the commandments of, the, of God. He says, without first knowing them, and we cannot expect to know all or more than we know now, unless we comply with, our, with or keep those we have already received. That which is wrong under one circumstance may be and often is right under another. God said, thou shalt not kill, 
At another time he said, Thou shalt utterly destroy. This is the principle on which the government of heaven is conducted, by revelation adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom are placed. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. The way this is presented is very, very troubling. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. Joseph Smith is setting up this idea that right and wrong are subjective to God, but we as people, children of God, for those that believe and, and uh, practice the theology, the children of God are required to follow those commandments, even though they are subject to change based on whatever God says. Within the Euthyphro dilemma that we discussed last week, uh, that was that was hypothetical. That was that was purely a thought experiment. But the happiness letter brings it front and center. It's this idea that's seen in many religions, not unique to the LDS faith, that something can be right at one point in time and then wrong at another point in time. Joseph Smith in this example, uh, in the happiness letter, is using the example of thou shalt not kill. And then he's referring to the many times in the scriptures where people are commanded to murder. So the question becomes, is murder good? At the expense of sounding like a Sith, and <laughs> I'd like to deal in absolutes here. I want to know if murder is good or if murder is bad. And you could use that phrase uh, for any of the commandments that have changed or shifted. For me, it explicitly states my problem with this form of theology. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire. This line of reasoning, it's starting off with the assumption that, that God cannot do anything wrong, or that the followers, the prophets of God, the church, has never done anything wrong. Therefore, we misunderstand the will of God. This is the same argument used to downplay the priesthood ban and any of the other things that the church has changed in the past. The members weren't ready yet, or any other excuse that, that shifts the blame away from God and onto the members of the church, or onto a misunderstanding of the will of God. But for me, that's not an acceptable explanation. How can a God be a loving God for both the person he's commanding to murder and the person he's commanding to be murdered? From my understanding, God, as presented in the scriptures and through the LDS theology, is the father of all of his children on this planet. So if he's commanding one of his children to kill another child, how then can God be considered a loving God for both of those children? If goodness, morality, or rightness is both murdering and not murdering, then it loses its meaning. I'm going to keep reading the letter. We'll get through this eventually. If we first seek the kingdom of God, all good things will be added. So with Solomon, first he asked wisdom, and God gave it him. And with every desire of his heart, even things which might be considered abominable to all who understand the order of heaven only in part, 
but which, in reality, were right, because God gave and sanctioned by special revelation. A parent may whip a child, and justly too, because he stole an apple, whereas if the child had asked for the apple and the parent had given it, the child would have eaten it with a better appetite. There would have been no stripes, all the pleasures of the apple would have been secured, and the misery of stealing lost. This principle will justly apply to all of God's dealings with his children. Everything that God gives us is lawful and right, and it is proper that we should enjoy his gifts and blessings whenever and wherever he is disposed to bestow. But if we should seize upon those same blessings and enjoyments without law, without revelation, without commandment, those blessings and enjoyments would prove cursings and vexations in the end, and we should have to lie down in sorrow and wailings of everlasting regret. Joseph Smith is setting up Solomon, the wise. He says that that Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him, and with it every desire of his heart, even things which might be considered abominable to all who understand the order of heaven, only in part. To me, it seems like Joseph Smith is trying to say that Solomon asked God if he could have multiple wives. By recounting the story of a child stealing an apple and then getting whipped, and then the, the same, you know, then a child asking for the apple, apple and having it given freely. The connection that I'm drawing here is that Joseph Smith is trying to say that he has asked God for permission to behave in this way. He says, Everything that God gives us is lawful and right, and it is proper that we should enjoy his gifts and blessings. Although not explicit within the letter itself, it is talking about a, mar- a plural marriage proposal. I mentioned an excellent TV show last year around October that has a similar preacher, very charismatic, showing this same idea within theology. Definitely, definitely recommend the listeners go and watch the Netflix show Midnight Mass. Content warning, it is pretty graphic in the last few episodes, but it is such an amazing story. And there are some very significant parallels to the way this preacher is prepping his congregation for something horrible. This preacher uses the exact same reasoning, saying that what God commands at one point, that whatever God commands is right. And sometimes his commandments contradict each other. And that's okay because we're listening to God. This idea that a charismatic leader can get whatever they want if they put that commandment onto the mouth of God. Now, whether God commanded it or not, this idea makes the morality of the religion meaningless. Right and wrong lose their value when right can be both wrong and right depending on what the church or God tells you. This line of reasoning has been used to justify so many heinous things throughout the course of history, slavery, genocide, in the name of this this divine command theory that whatever God commands is correct. And the only person who knows what God is commanding is this prophet or is this charismatic leader. Go watch Midnight Mass. It is an amazing show um, dealing with some interesting ideas around morality. One of the middle episodes, I can't recall which, just left me in tears. It was just so powerful. 
So imagine being a believer and the prophet of God comes to you and he says, God has told me to do this. If a person ascribes to this divine command theory, this idea that all of morality stems from divinity, and this prophet of God is speaking on behalf of this divinity, how can you say no to that? It is such an imbalance in power between the men and the women in the practice of polygamy. If you haven't read The Happiness Letter, go read it. It's very shocking and telling to the way that this was uh, the practice of polygamy was instituted and the way that new people were taught about this subject, or specifically young girls were inducted into the practice. It was coercive, it was manipulative, and it used very shaky morality in order to justify its existence. As I said, there are so many problems with the way polygamy was practiced. I just wanted to focus on it through, through the lens of divine command theory to show that if God can behave this way, he or she cannot be a moral entity. At the expense of beating a dead horse, I'll frame it one last time like this. God commands what is good only works if those commandments don't change. Because if those commandments change and contradict each other, then you can't say, you can't use the idea or the concept of good to describe them. Instead, you should say something more along the lines of God commands what he commands. Good doesn't really come into the equation when both murder and not murdering are both commanded by God at different times. Or if, as we have in the Book of Mormon, polygamy is condemned, but then later practiced. If God is commanding both of these things, they can't both be good because they're opposites. The statement about God's commandments being good doesn't have value. His commandments are just his commandments, and they become arbitrary. So if the commandments aren't good or bad, they're just commandments, that changes their context. Are they recommendations? Are they threats? If we can't look at them as moral good things or moral bad things, what are they? This is, this is part of the reason that the divine command theory falls apart. If God can't be described by these terms of good and bad, then what is he or she? And are they worth following? When Joseph Smith uses this sort of logic to describe the government in heaven, it's very problematic for me. Because ideas of a loving and kind deity fall apart when the commandments cannot be attributed to goodness, when virtue has no place in the commandments of God. And as I said, I wasn't criticizing um, some of the other much more problematic aspects of this. I'm simply criticizing the justification used to implement the practice of polygamy. A God that can change his mind on what's right and wrong is not worth following. This one was a little bit more direct, a little bit harsher of a criticism than I typically do. I think that there are many aspects of the faith that are salvageable, that can be meaningful to people's lives. This sort of a, a justification for the shifting commandments of God has been used for ages, for millennia. The discourses by Plato are 2,500 years old at this point. This is a discussion that should have been long dead by now. But, unfortunately, 
we're still living with many of the ramifications of poorly thought out moral codes. This line of reasoning should not be used to justify subjects such as the priesthood ban or polygamy. If something can be good and then later bad, or bad and then later good, good and bad have no meaning. Switching gears. (laughs) I don't have a great segue from that. (laughs) I've said a couple of times I'm going to be headed to Salt Lake City uh, late September. September 23rd is when I'm flying into town. I'll be there for a couple of nights. But I'd like to get together with some listeners on September the 23rd that evening, that Friday evening. I'll post on Facebook and, and put some details I'll also mention it in a future episode when we settle on a a location and a time. But I'd love to meet some of you. I think that would be a blast. I think it would be fun to just chat for a little bit and get to know some of the listeners. So if you're interested, uh, pay attention to that. The next week or the week after, I'll announce something. Wherever you find yourself out there today, walking out to get the mail, I hope that you have an excellent day.